Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Again, thank you for being here this evening. We are going to just continue our series in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this evening, if you'd like to grab your Bibles. And we are going to tackle this entire chapter. And so uh, we've got quite a few verses to run through, but we should be able to make some pretty good time doing so. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then... We'll go ahead and just jump in, hit the ground running. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I want to pray really quick just to get going. So, Father, we do just want to lift this time up to you right now. Father, as we go through chapter 3 of Genesis, I pray that it's not just head knowledge that we obtain tonight. Father, I pray that you speak to each one of us directly into our hearts, that you reveal truths to us that we may have overlooked or maybe that we've seen a a hundred times before and have forgotten. Wherever each one of us is at, Father, we ask you right now to come and and meet us here in this place and in our current position. Father, again, I pray that this is a, a message that is yours and that doesn't just impact our heads, but that you pierce through to our hearts tonight. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so the book of Genesis, we've been going through it over the last several Wednesdays, and we've got about three years left to fit in. No, I'm teasing. <clears throat> We're going to knock it out all this year. I'm, I'm confident of that. But as we were going through it, we've been building kind of a, a few different themes that we're going to continue on here this evening. But the book of Genesis is primarily about God communicating himself to us. Over the course of the study so far, we've seen how Christ has been present through those first two chapters. Uh, we've, we've been able to see Christ present in, in several different instances. And as God is communicating to us about who he is, Jesus has been very clearly present through that process. Last week, Liam was sharing how God desired to share his creation, to share his good things with mankind. And as we move now into chapter 3, we need to keep that in mind as we're going through it. God's desire has always been to share his good things with his creation, but specifically the element of his creation that he created in his own image, being us. His heart is a giving heart. His heart is a loving heart. And from our perspective, this is what makes Genesis 3 hard to swallow. God's giving, his love, his goodness, those things were met with man's selfishness and sin. His perfect creation becomes 
corrupted. So the third chapter of Genesis a lot of times can be identified as a sorrowful time, but we're not going to focus entirely on that. It can also be identified as the entire plot line of the Bible. In fact, many scholars are going to claim or will claim that this is the single most important chapter of the entire Bible as it lays the foundation for every major Christian doctrine. We don't know exactly when Satan fell. When he and his angels chose to rebel against God, the the timing is a bit of a mystery, but we do know that it happened at some point prior to chapter 3. There's speculation as to different times where it could have happened, but because we we quickly learned that the serpent that we're we're just uh, going to be reading about is speaking to Eve, and in fact, that serpent is Satan himself. And so we know that he is already the deceiver, that he has already fallen, he's already rebelled against God somewhere before chapter 3. And we won't get into the, the nitty-gritty of when or how and the different possibilities of when he fell, but we know that he's fallen in this position. It's interesting to note that throughout this text, Satan is never officially identified as being the serpent. There's actually a lot of speculation as to what form Satan took, or, uh, Satan took on as the serpent. Did he possess the serpent? Did he just speak through the serpent? Um, was he just masquerading as a serpent? There's a lot of different views on that. And again, those are some of the things that we'll have to set aside for tonight. But we, we understand that he is present and that this is a conversation that he is having, and he is clearly, in some form or another, representing and presenting a serpent to Eve as this conversation goes on. Ezekiel 28, though, does tell us specifically that Satan was present in the Garden of Eden. So chapter 3 is actually fairly dialogue-heavy, We continue the narrative that we had started with Genesis 1 and kind of working through things. And there was some dialogue here and there in Genesis 1. God is primarily talking to himself at times. Genesis 2, there's some conversation between God and Adam. And then you move into Genesis 3 where there's quite a bit of dialogue and there are different characters that are introduced and there's several different conversations that will take place. We'll We'll see through that as we go. But there are actual conversations and I keep already presenting this and just reminding you, you want to make sure that you are understanding this as a real historical event, that these are actual conversations that took place, that there were actual consequences that happened and there were actual occurrences of choices and uh, deceptions and all of the things that we're going to get into. These are real historical events. So we see through this conversation that mankind gets themselves into a pretty big mess. And then later on in the chapter, we see that God reveals his process of restoration. God's redeeming plan to get mankind out of the mess that we got ourselves into. So this chapter, this event, is often referred to as the fall of man. But I would argue that that is placing too much emphasis in the wrong direction. Verse 15 is really going to establish that point when we get there, and it's going to identify and kind of lay out the purpose of this chapter. And the purpose of this chapter is the gospel. The purpose of Genesis 3 is the gospel. This is actually going to be the first depiction of what God has in store for mankind and what he has in store for Satan and a response to his wickedness. So let's look again at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God has made, had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The serpent was cunning. This was one of the first things here in the chapter. In other areas of the Old Testament, this Hebrew word is typically used to describe wisdom and intelligence. Cunning or craftiness still works, and it adds a layer to what the serpent was working with. So we understand that the serpent here, this conversation that's beginning, he was an intelligent, wise creature, 
but he had a cunning to him. He had a craftiness or a trickery about him. So in his essence, Satan begins speaking with Eve and the understanding that we should have going into this conversation is that he was not only tricky or conniving, but that he was also very intelligent and wise especially as we see the conversation that he has with Eve and it centers around gaining knowledge or gaining wisdom. In this conversation, Satan is establishing a pattern that he has continued to use. We can see the pattern throughout all of scripture and in our own lives. If you start to evaluate those temptations and those things that you deal with in a sinful way, you can probably identify the same pattern in your own life. So when Ecclesiastes says that there is nothing new under the sun, that goes for the devil as well. He doesn't have any new tricks. Everything he tries on you and me has been tried on people before us. And if we're diligent with our Bible study, if we're diligent with our understanding of the events that have happened before we were here walking the earth, we understand and we can begin to identify how Satan has impacted other people And we can potentially prevent him having the same impact in our own life. We can see how how some of those people overcame Satan. Or we can see how some of those people uh, before us have succumbed to Satan. And then hopefully we can learn from either their mistakes or the things that they did. And in that case, again, we would hopefully be able to flee when we identify Satan is present in our life or one of his minions. See, the first tactic is to create doubt. This is the first thing that Satan does here. He's specifically um, placing doubt centering on what God has said. So he says, did God really say? He poses a question to Eve, and it's a question to bring confusion or to bring doubt with it. Every page of the Bible is under attack today in our modern culture and our modern society. Our culture has fully embraced the doubt and confusion that Satan has brought about. Even the majority of self-professing professing Christians take the Bible as a book with errors or simply a book of stories. This is very or this very event that we're talking about right now, the fall of man and this conversation the foundation of Christian doctrine is usually viewed as an allegorical story or a myth that borrowed from ancient traditions and cultures. And if that irony doesn't, if you don't catch that irony, be sure that you do. The very book that reveals Satan is trying to get us to doubt God's word is doubted as being God's word. Right? And that's a very interesting kind of conundrum that we're in. So if we pick back up in in verse 1, verse 2, now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, again, that, that emphasis on doubt, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So Satan here is creating doubt as we saw. He's causing confusion and we can see that confusion in Eve's response. See, she says, the, um, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. See, she adds to what God had said to her. Not in a malicious or sinful way. She was genuinely confused because of the deception of Satan. See, this is, this is how temptation starts. Doubt and confusion. But notice a very important part of this event. So you would seem through the text that the conversation is taking place near the center of the garden. So I picture one of two things happening here as this dialogue is taking place. Either Eve was already near the tree of knowledge, or as Satan was speaking to her, she ended up walking there. Either way, the temptation became a temptation because Eve allowed herself to get close to it. 
They had an entire garden with trees and animals and rivers and all kinds of unimaginable beautiful things. God had instructed them to not eat of one single tree. Everything else they had dominion and and they had freedom to partake in and enjoy. See, the law was easy then. There was literally only one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. See, there's a boundary, and this is the boundary I kind of talked about on Sunday. We tend to figure out where the boundary is and try as best as we can not to cross it, but get as close to it as we possibly can. I think that's kind of what happened here with Eve. There was a boundary that had been put in place. There was one single tree, and everything else in the garden was accessible to her. Eve was told not to eat, so she thought, well, maybe I'll just go look at it. Maybe I'll go look at the tree. And then looking maybe became, well, maybe I should get a closer look. So she gets a little closer. And then she was at a point where maybe she was thinking, well, maybe I'll just touch it. Maybe I'll just touch this beautiful tree. See, she was there in its presence. And that's when Satan saw his opening. I tend to think that this was a process Adam may have been around for part of it, and as well, he could have been going through a similar process. But in this particular instance, Satan was able to focus on Eve and on her temptation towards wisdom. So once you're in proximity to what tempts you, it becomes easier to have doubt or to become confused. I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people that have fallen into some sort of sin. If, if maybe it's a, a sexual sin or it's a, a drug or alcohol-related sin or it's some sort of sin. And as you're having these conversations, there always seems to be a reoccurring theme. And when you ask them about their temptation or you start honing in on the proximity, there's always something, right? Like they ended up in a bar and that's why they started drinking. Well, why were they in a bar? Well, and then there's all these excuses, Our proximity to our temptations will directly impact how we handle and respond to those temptations. So step one is allowing yourself to get too close to the things that you know will tempt you. And I think that's what was happening to Eve here. And again, maybe she was already standing near the tree or maybe she was moving towards it as the conversation had happened, but this wasn't a single event. This wasn't something that just accidentally happened. She didn't look up one day and was like, oh, look, it's the tree of life and the, or tree of knowledge. And then Satan swoops in and starts talking to her. There was a process here. And at first it was a sinless process. But after doubt and confusion, Satan then begins to deliberately reject God's word. Look at verse 4. It says, The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. He counters God's words with a direct uh, opposite. He deliberately rejects God's words. He's trying to make God out to be someone that he is not by looking and or worried that Adam and Eve would become like him in, in some sort of godlike way. So he's twisting the words, he's rejecting the words, he's created doubt, he's created confusion. And this is the point where Eve should have remembered God's words to her and Adam and countered Satan. She could have responded in truth. At the very least, this is where she could have fled from the presence of Satan. The New Testament tells us that whenever we are tempted, God gives us a way out. That would have been true here for Eve as well. There was a way out. She may not have seen it at the time. She may have been intrigued by the conversation, and so she chose to stay. Whatever the case is, we know that that way out was not something that she chose. Eve had compromised her position and she had been sucked in by the lies of the devil. She began to see the fake reality that Satan was selling as truth. She started to see the tree as something that she could obtain. She started to see that the consequences that were laid out for her maybe weren't that big of a deal. Maybe God wasn't fully honest with her. Whatever the case was, she started to see what was actually bad as good. She was twisting everything in her own mind. 
So Paul confirms this when he's speaking to the Corinthians. See, he's worried that they're going to buy into, false gospel, into a false gospel, and he uses Eve's behavior as a negative example. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve got too close to her source of temptation. She allowed doubt to confuse her mind, and she succumbed to the deception of the enemy. Ultimately, we know that Eve gave in to temptation. Verse 6 shows us the deciding factors. So look at verse 6 here. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. So three things, excuse me, three things. She noticed that the fruit was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it could make one wise. She's decided all of these things in her own mind based on the deception of Satan. 1 John 2, 15 through 16, the apostle John says something very, very similar to this as an exhortation. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, you see the same three things. The lust of the flesh, that was fulfilled by her desire for the food, looking or appearing that it was good, good to eat. The lust of the eyes, she found delight of her eyes when she looked upon the tree. The pride of life or the wisdom. Wisdom, there's a very fine line between gaining knowledge and wisdom and becoming prideful. So these are the same things. It's the same formula. Satan used it on Eve. He uses it towards us. It's the same formula that he used on Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. He appealed to his hunger. He appealed to his uh, the, the beauty or the dominion. He appealed to his pride of rule. It's the same formula that we saw. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Satan has been doing the same thing towards people over and over all throughout history. See, Eve was con had convinced herself that the fruit was beneficial and that she needed to eat it. And so she did. And that's how sin entered the world through the woman. So we can just wrap it up there, right? We're done. We've established, no, I obviously am joking. This one can get very tricky very quickly because everyone's going to want to point fingers. It was Eve's fault. It was Adam's fault. It was Eve's fault, but we're going to talk about it. No. <clears throat> but do you ever wonder why Eve was the target of Satan's deception? See, the Bible doesn't make it clear why she was the target, but there have been some interesting thoughts, some conjecture. See, God's instruction is given directly to Adam. If we go back to Genesis 2 last week, before Eve was created is when uh, God is giving these instructions to Adam that he's not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the very next verse is when Eve is created. So it's reasonable to assume that, and some would suggest that Adam maybe just did a really bad job relaying the message to Eve. That after the fact, he's like, oh yeah, we're not really supposed to eat from that tree, but and he doesn't give her any consequence or any reason why or whatever it is. I don't think that that's a reasonable explanation. As we see, there's an intimate relationship here between Adam and Eve with God himself. So even if she, he, she wasn't there at that initial conversation, I'm sure it didn't slip God's mind to let her know at some point. And she even said as much when she was talking to the serpent. She didn't say, well, my husband told me. She specifically said, well, God told us this. So I don't think that that's it. I don't think it, was, it can all be blamed on Adam for that instance. The thought sticks out to me, or the thought that sticks out to me is the idea that God has an established order. We'll talk more about that as we go through this. But the idea that Adam was created first, he was given the authority. See, if Adam ate of the tree first, then that actually would have given Eve somewhat of a legitimate excuse. 
If Adam, being the, the authority figure, went to the tree and he was deceived and he ate of the fruit and then he went home and he gave the fruit to Eve and said, hey, you should eat this, I ate it, and she chooses to, then when we get to that place where God comes and has the conversation and he looks to Eve and he says, why did you do it? And she's like, the man that you gave to rule over me told me to, so I was just obeying him. There's a, a somewhat of a legitimate excuse there. And so we have to take that into consideration when we're thinking about that. But still, even, even that, I don't think that that's the ultimate reason as to why Eve was the one that was deceived. We'll see the excuses that she and Adam both give later on, but God, or to God, but if Adam had been given authority and he told her to eat, again, she was just following those orders. So let's look at the, the, part, the last part of verse six. She also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. The inclusion of the phrase with her leads many to believe that Adam was present for this entire event, that he was just standing by silently, allowing Satan to confuse his wife, and that he chose to do nothing about it. This view typically presents Adam kind of like a sitcom-style husband that we're used to in our culture. He's the stupid one that doesn't really know any better. I think it's someone like Al Bundy or you know any of these nonsensical um, husbands that basically just follow the whims of their wives and do whatever and, and are just kind of the big oafs. But I don't think that that's what Adam was. See, through these verses and then others in the New Testament, it seems that Adam wasn't actually present for Satan's deception. If he was, he probably would have been deceived himself and more than likely he would have been the one that Satan would have been talking directly to. See, either way, Paul makes it clear that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. But we know that they both sinned, and it's through Adam's sin that the, the entire human race becomes cursed. As we look at New Testament scripture on this, we see that it isn't Eve's sin that carries the curse. It isn't Eve's sin that is what is addressed as bringing that curse upon all of us, but it's Adam's. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. Ultimately, at least from our perspective, Adam's sin was far worse than Eve's because he ends up making a choice with his eyes wide open and his choice is to deliberately sin against God. Eve was deceived. Adam chose to sin. Romans 5, 12 uh, through 14, Paul's writing, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And that's the phrase that we're going to focus in on. Adam is a type of him who was to come. Paul indicates here that he is a, a type, that Adam is a type or a model of Jesus Christ. We understand this. We typically focus on what Paul says when he's speaking um, of the first Adam and the last Adam. He speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. But there's even more significant element that we sometimes start to miss or, or it's easy to miss. Adam was called a son of God in the Gospels. See, Adam was perfect. Those are two indicators or descriptions of Christ as well. He's the son of God and we know that he also was perfect. But this is usually where the description of him being a type of Jesus wraps up. Then people will start to tend to focus on the negative aspects of Adam, the distinctions between the first Adam and the last Adam. They'll say that through Adam we were brought into sin and death, and we be, uh, excuse me, that that became part of our reality. But then through Jesus we are brought into life, and eternal life is restored. So that's a contrast between them. 
But if we look at Adam from a godly perspective, we think about God's ultimate plan of restoration and reconciliation. In Adam, we can truly start to see Jesus. So this would be my, maybe conjecture a little bit, but I'm going to build it with some scripture as to why it was Eve that was deceived and why Adam making this choice to sin is so significant. So if we look at Adam from that godly perspective, we're going to see some of these things. First off, Adam sees his bride. She has just committed sin against God. Adam understands the consequences of her actions, and he knows that she is going, and he knows that she's going to die. So Adam has a choice. If he chooses to remain sinless, Eve dies. He remains perfect, and he continues in fellowship with God. Whatever happened next would be up to God. But if he chooses sin, if he makes that choice to eat with her, he in essence becomes sin for her. See, unlike Jesus, Adam is unable to remove Eve's sin or the consequences from her, But he is simply moving into and joining her in her position. He is sinning for her. But through that choice, he's demonstrating his willingness to give his life for his bride. Which is exactly what Jesus does. He's just able to do it perfectly. When Jesus lays down his life for his bride, it's without sinning. It's perfect love. It's perfect payment. Everything about it is perfect. See, we look at Adam's choice through the lens of the implications of humanity, but here we're able to see Adam's choice through the implications of Christ. God's plan of redemption wasn't made up as history unfolded. It was his plan from the beginning, and he reveals that plan throughout all of Scripture. So when we talk about Adam as being a model of Christ, he is truly modeling what Christ would ultimately do for the church. Verse 8. Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So there's a lot of things to uncover right here. But first off, notice who is calling to who. God was looking for Adam and Eve while they were hiding. When we are in our sin, we are not seeking God But it's when we are in our sin that he is calling out to us. And here God isn't calling out as an officer of the law. He was calling out as a concerned father, a brokenhearted father. He already knew what had happened. He wasn't coming to condemn, but he was coming to cover and restore But notice who God called out to. See, from God's perspective, Adam is the one that has some explaining to do. While God's intention is to restore Adam and Eve, he wasn't able to do that without first addressing the sin and dealing with the consequences. We have to take personal responsibility when it comes to our sin and to our own repentance. So in verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. This is Adam speaking. So I hid myself. And and God said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree which, from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, and she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So Adam responds to God's questions, to his calling out, by stating that he was afraid and naked. These are two indictments on himself. See, while never admitting to eating from the tree, if you read through the rest of this, there's never going to be a point where Adam specifically says, yes, we ate from the tree. He does identify that they ate from the tree because he identified that they were naked and afraid. Isn't that a TV show now? (laughs) There's something weird like that? That's just random. So anyways, they were naked and afraid. And those are two things that they weren't prior to eating the tree. But through their sin came guilt and shame and came fear. So there's two indictments on himself with his statements there. And then, again, while not admitting that they actually ate from the tree, they start pointing fingers, right? Adam says, well, it was the woman's fault And then he ups the ante by saying, well, actually, you gave me the woman, so it's your fault. That reminds me of what Job says to God a few times. And then when the question finally turns to Eve and the first thing that God says to her is that same question, basically, Eve, what have you done? She doesn't fess up to it either. She just simply says, it was the serpent that deceived me. They're constantly passing blame. They're pushing around. But isn't this true for us as well? We have to come to a place of being fully broken before we're willing to repent. My son Rowdy is four years old. Right now he's learning how not to lie. He's learning how not to hide when he does something wrong. He's learning not to blame others for his bad choices. He has a lot to learn in all of these areas because these don't come naturally for us. Notice I didn't say he's learning to lie. That came very natural. He's learning not to lie. He's not learning how to run and hide. That comes natural. He does something wrong and he goes and hides. It's very easy to figure out if he's done something wrong because you can't find him. It's very easy to find out if he's done something wrong because he doesn't actually fess up to it. He just starts blaming other people or it was her or she made me do it or whatever it was. He's four. It comes very natural for him. I'm 41. It still comes pretty natural for me as well. Our natural inclination is to try and cover our own tails when we're in the midst of sin. See, Adam and Eve, regardless of their age and the amount of time that had passed from their creation to this instance here, they were still like children in their sin. This was the first time they had sinned. This was the first encounter where their eyes had been opened wide and they were open to evil. They completely responded like a child in this instance. And like I said, the sad reality for for me and for many of us is that if we are in our flesh, that is how we still respond. When we respond in the flesh, we naturally lie or we hide from our responsibilities and our accountability. We pretend a circumstance doesn't exist for as long as we can. We blame others. We blame God. We blame Satan. When we are in our flesh, these childlike behaviors begin to manifest. Warren Wiersbe says that when people start making excuses, it's evidence that they don't sense the enormity of their sins or want to confess them and repent. If sinners can find some loophole, they'll run through it as fast as they can. It's only when we become broken and we've turned and submitted to God that we can begin to respond to our sin in a mature way way, a Christ-like way. So this scene is a total depiction of God's grace and mercy. He didn't owe Adam and Eve any sort of explanation. He told them the consequences of eating from the tree. God would have been well within his right as creator and as Lord to end their life on the spot. 
No explanation, no discussion, just judgment. But that isn't how God operates. You can search Scripture and will be hard-pressed to find an instance where judgment precedes grace and mercy. So Adam and Eve step out from among their hiding place, revealing their own failed attempt at covering their sins with their itchy, ridiculous little fig leaf coverings. But they're standing there face to face with God. The wording of this encounter suggests that they were familiar, or that this was familiar, and they were familiar with God's practice of walking through the garden. They were, they were familiar with God walking and talking to them. That was part of their relationship as the perfect couple in the beginning, walking with him through the garden in the cool of the day. About a year and a half ago, I spoke on Colossians 1, and I'm not expecting any of you to remember that, but during that message, I shared a reality that we sometimes miss. In this instance, face-to-face with God, Adam and Eve were standing in the presence of Jesus. They were looking at him face-to-face. They were hiding from him. Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We know from Moses' time when with God that he was not able to see God in his full glory or see him in his spiritual form. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the express image of his person, meaning the express image of the Father. There's an intimacy that is sometimes missed when we think of God as a larger, uh, larger than life spiritual being. But when we realize that in these instances, in instances like God talking to Abraham where it's an intimate setting, it is actually God in this human form. It is God as Jesus. And we have that very intimate conversation. So as we go through the rest of this chapter, I want you to put that picture in your mind. Jesus is there speaking with Adam and Eve. Jesus is there encountering the serpent and explaining the consequences. Jesus is there providing the covering for Adam and Eve's sin. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you were dust and to dust you shall return. There are consequences for sin. But notice the order in which God focuses his statements. He first speaks to the serpent, the actual creature. He then moves to talking to Satan, and then to Eve, and then finally to Adam. This is the, I guess, the order of indictment, if you will. This was the order of the process. The serpent was cursed to slither on its belly. This curse here seems to actually indicate that there was some sort of physical transformation from what God had originally created to what the serpent was to become. And this image or this transformation would have happened directly in front of Adam and Eve. You get the sense that they're thinking, what's, what's in store for us? A curse to crawl on its belly. So if it, if it had some sort of other posture, that posture was changed. It was cursed to slither on its belly and it slithers away. And we know that there's been tension between 
snakes and humans or uh, the serpent and humans throughout history. And it's interesting that there there's even seems to be more of a proclivity towards like despising snakes from women than from men, right? They're one of those creepy crawly things that women just tend to not enjoy. That's just extra stuff, but... So the image is one of transformation that Adam and Eve would have witnessed and seen. Satan and Eve, I'm going to talk about here in just a second, but when we get to Adam and what happens when God addresses Adam, there are several things that take place. The ground was cursed. Adam was forced to work hard labor to produce food. Thorns would make his work difficult. Sweat would be associated with his work. And all of that would culminate with him dying and then returning to the ground or to the dust from which he came. It is interesting to note, and we, we don't have time to dive into it, but each one of these things that are part of the consequences of Adam. Now notice Adam and Eve are never given a direct curse. They're given consequences. Where the serpent was given cursed, the land was cursed, Satan was cursed, but Adam and Eve were not cursed through this process. They were just given the consequences of sin. But all of those consequences, and then those even associated or given to, to Eve, through Christ, they're all fully redeemed. You can go through and take a look at each one of those and, and draw some scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, and you can see that through his work on the cross, Jesus redeems each one of these things. So now we come to verse 15, and I've already read it, but this is where Satan and Eve are addressed, and this has a fancy theological term associated with this verse, and that is proto-evangelium. And that simply means the first gospel. And the first gospel, don't confuse that to think that this was the first gospel and later on there's a second gospel. Paul makes it very clear there is a single gospel and anything aside from that is a false gospel. No, the, the purpose behind that term and the purpose of, of it being here is that this is the first instance of the gospel being presented. This is the first instance or the first allusion to what God's greater picture is. And so this is, you'd even say it's the law of the first encounter. When we encounter something for the first time in the Bible, it is significant, it is important, and it's something that we should always go back and dive into further. So this verse, verse 15, is that significant. Because this is where God addresses Satan directly, but he's also addressing Eve this is a, there is a curse towards Satan, but even in the midst of all of the consequences here, Eve is given a promise. Verse 15 says again, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Martin Luther says about this verse that this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. As I said, this is the, the foundational doctrine, the foundational verse of all Christian doctrine. The curse toward Satan is literally here where God declares war on Satan. It is God sealing Satan's fate. Romans 16, 20 references this when Paul says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The promise to Eve indicated that man's redemption would come through woman. But more significant than that is this idea of the seed of a woman. See, this phrase, and it's unfortunate that the NSAB and others uh, changed the phrase to say descendant or something along those lines. With a, They make it a capital D to indicate that it is the Lord that they're talking of. But the idea of the seed of a woman biologically doesn't make any sense. See, the seed is carried, biologically speaking, by the man. When you're talking about procreation, you're talking about how another person comes into being, the seed is carried by the man. So by this very phrase, the seed of the woman, there is an indication of the virgin birth. This is the first prophetic instance 
of that. See, from this point, right here and right now, in, in Genesis 3.15, from that point to the cross, Satan has tried to taint, damage, and destroy the bloodline that extended from Adam and Eve. Because he understood what God was saying here. He understood that it was through them that the Messiah would come, that redemption would come, that restoration would come. And it was through that process, or it was because of that process, that he saw fit to try and destroy that bloodline. See, this is another confirmation that this is historical and not just myth or allegory. The entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament are built on these events. Satan had actively been targeting Adam's bloodline. And understanding that that curse was literal curse. We'll pick that up in, in Genesis 4 next week. will be the first encounter where we see of this bloodline and the, the, the problems that are there. But in Genesis 6, he's going to try and mess with Adam's bloodline. In Genesis 12 and 20, he goes after Abraham's seed. In Exodus 1, he tries to kill all of the firstborn of the Jews or of the Hebrews. In 2 Samuel, he goes after David's bloodline. There's New Testament examples also. Satan tried to eliminate the firstborn after Jesus was born. When Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, when he was still in Nazareth, they tried to push him off of a cliff just because... See, these are all attempts of Satan, and there's countless others. That was just a, a very small depiction. But all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are attempts of Satan trying to thwart God's plan. Genesis 3.15 is a declaration of war. Satan took God serious, and he's been at war with him ever since. See, prior to that, it was just Satan rebelling against God. But with Genesis 3.15, with the promise of the Messiah... God declared war, and he declared victory. See, if Satan could defeat God's Messiah, he believed that he could then stand a chance. Satan's greatest effort was orchestrated through Judas. And the interesting thing is, it actually worked. Right? Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested. He was sentenced. The people hated him. They wanted him dead. They cried out, crucify him. As Jesus hung on the cross dying, Satan in his own mind may have thought, it is finished. I have finally won. But what Satan didn't realize is that, was, that he was a mere puppet. All of his activity, all of his attempts to kill the Messiah were exactly what God had ordained back in the garden. Satan's own pride led him to think that he was carrying out his own will, but he was simply fighting an unwinnable battle. And he's still fighting that unwinnable battle, knowing that his fate has been sealed, that on that day he was defeated, and in the coming days he will be sentenced. See, the hope of humanity stems from Genesis 3.15 as the first gospel or as the first appearance of the gospel the first hint of good news, and it manifests itself in the salvation given through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. God's plan always has been for man to be reconciled back to him. So verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has, come like one of us, has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's one last image that I want you to keep in mind as we start to wrap this up. See, sin brings death, but the covering of sin brings the death of the innocent. Let me say that again. Sin brings death, 
But in order to cover sin or to offer a covering of sin, it brings the death of the innocent. The last part of chapter 21 indicates that the Lord made tunics of skin. This implies that an animal, and I would go as far as conjecturing that it was probably a lamb, was killed and the skin was used to make these coverings. Innocent blood, this animal that had nothing to do with the sin of Adam, had to pay the price. That blood had to be spilled in order to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. But here's the picture again that I want you to keep in your mind. This portion right here, this was still Jesus with Adam and Eve. In whatever form and fashion, Jesus took this animal and killed it. He skinned it. He prepared and sewed the tunics and he gave them to Adam and Eve. Again, as a symbol of what he would eventually do with his own life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 24 has an interesting thing that I just wanted to point out. It says, So he drove, drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the question I always ask when I read this is why did the cherubim, or why was it cherubim and a flaming sword? Why were they placed? It says it in the text. It, it says that they were there to guard the way to the tree of life. And so I used to think that this meant that they were guarding the tree from Adam and Eve, ensuring that they didn't make their way back and eat of the tree of life and, and have eternal life in their sinful state. But the more I've studied it, the more I've began to understand that humanity is merely pawns in God's drama and that it isn't really about us, that there's other things going on. I started to see that the tree of life, it's actually going to be reintroduced in the book of Revelation. And it's in the kingdom. And at that time, we will be able to partake in it. So the way had to be guarded for a particular reason. From, from the beginning of time until that culmination in the kingdom, it has to be guarded or protected. And the question was, why? And it wasn't because, or it isn't because of Adam and Eve necessarily trying to get back, or it isn't because we're necessarily seeking the way to find it. It's, this isn't a, an Indiana Jones you know, story where we're going to go find it. But it was to prevent Satan or his minions from trying to destroy the way back to it. And that's why there's cherubim placed there, not just regular angels. Cherubim are a higher order of angel. Satan himself was a cherubim. And a regular angel would have kept any human out. But the purpose behind the cherubim and the flaming sword was to ensure that the way back to the tree would always remain intact. It would always be there and established for when the timing was for it to come back and be given back to us. See, it's part of God's plan. So as we conclude chapter 3, we must remember that the climax or the point of the chapter is not the fall of man, but the redemption of God. He restored what Adam and Eve messed up. He revealed his plan of redemption in their lives, and he also revealed it for all of humanity. While chapter 3 does have tragic elements, they're overshadowed by the presence of our Lord and Savior. Our lives have tragedy. Our lives have our own sin that we must deal with. But our sin and our tragedies are not the point of our lives. Our eyes need to be turned to Jesus because he is the author and finisher of our faith. And as we continue to move through Genesis that theme is going to continue to resonate itself. Jesus is present. God's plan has always been his plan from before the foundations of the earth were laid. His plan is a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. 
Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. Hope you'll join us next week as we continue our